Friends and family of Marshall Bible Church, the Lord be with you. My name is Troy, and I am really honored to be able to serve this church as one of our pastors here. I want to begin today with uh, a financial update. We've uh, committed over the past couple years to regularly update our community on how things are going financially. And particularly in this season when so many things are changing, when we've had Obviously, a global pandemic and a leadership transition and not being able to meet in person. Um, We've had a lot of things to think about and to consider, but we don't want to lose sight of this aspect of our church, particularly in a season um, when we're in a series where we're trying to focus on our mission and our vision. We want to be able to ensure that we're able to continually give ourselves faithfully to this vision, to be a Jesus people for the sake of the world. So, unvarnished, here are the numbers for this fiscal year, starting in uh, July up until our most recent count. Um, This is where we find ourselves. Our ask is $652,000, and what we've had come in is $556,000. So it's almost $100,000 short. It's uh, not quite 15% um, that we are behind. Um, That's it. That is the reality. I know that for many of us, uh, this may not have been front of mind, especially since we're not coming to meet in person here on a weekly basis. Um, So the ask is this, would you continue to faithfully give? We want to be able to continue to make contributions in West Michigan and around the world and to fulfill this mission and vision. Um, And that requires funds. And so would you consider um, giving? You can do that online. You can do that through our Encounter app. You can do that if you happen to come on one of the Sunday mornings in the joy boxes at the back of the room. But please consider this uh, opportunity in front of us. We appreciate it. Thanks. Uh, For uh, the sermon today, I want to begin here, inviting you to imagine. Now, for how many of you did that word conjure up the opening piano introduction of a John Lennon song? Probably a lot more of you now, huh? Um, But here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to imagine two scenarios with me. First, imagine a society where the most vulnerable people are intentionally and carefully considered and cared for. What does that larger society look like? What are the people who make up that society like? How would you describe the people who live in that society, lovingly caring for the most disadvantaged and the most vulnerable among them? Take a couple seconds and imagine that society. Okay, now I want you to scrub your mind of that those people, those descriptors, do whatever is the mental version of shaking the etch-a-sketch and clear the board. And now I want you to imagine a different society. In this society, the people who make it up, they're slow to listen to each other. They assume that they already know what someone else is going to say, and that person is probably wrong. They are hesitant at best, and they are outright resistant at worst to any perspective that is different from their own. The society is also quick to speak. The reaction time for responding to what is happening around them, it's remarkably fast. These are people who are on the lookout 
for opportunities to share their opinions, which unfortunately at times are half-truths or inaccurately represented facts. And this society on top of that is quick to become angry. There's an intensity boiling under the surface of every conversation and every interaction. The power of many reactions It's wildly out of balance with what's being reacted to. There are lots of perceived enemies, lots of hurt feelings, and a low-grade kind of animosity in vitriol in what looks like true hatred of other people. Can you imagine a society that's like that? Here's my suspicion. The kind of society that you imagine in the first scenario, a society that is intentionally caring for the most vulnerable, that it's not the same one as I described in the second scenario. Because isn't it hard to imagine a society that is slow to listen, quick to speak, quick to become angry, also being the kind of society in which the most disadvantaged and the most susceptible are being cared for. It's hard to imagine. Now, hold on to all of that for a couple of minutes. Today, we continue in our Steadfast series. These eight weeks where we are focusing on our church's vision and mission. And we're focusing now on the second half of our vision statement for the sake of the world. Christine will do the second part of that next week. And we're going to be looking today at the book of James. And this morning, I think James helps to point the way forward, asking us um, how we can faithfully live into this particular aspect of our vision for the sake of the world. And my hope is that today, um, it will help us to not lose sight of a few fundamental aspects that keep us grounded in our pursuit to be a Jesus people for the sake of the world. So if you have your Bibles, we'll be in James chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 17 and 18 here to begin our teaching text for today. So dig, if you will, these verses. 17 begins like this. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to begin by asking who. Who is God and who are we? How does James answer the question, who is God? And here we find first that God is the giver of gifts. But not just any old kind of gift. These are gifts that are good and perfect Many of you probably have had an experience where you would say something like this. God gave me exactly what I needed. Have you had that kind of experience? That's a manifestation of God being the giver of every good and perfect gift. James would claim that all of these gifts come from God. Jesus talks about a God who sends the rain on the good and the bad. That this is a generous God. He is a giver of every good and perfect gift. And then second, James describes God as the father of the heavenly lights. This is a great phrase. It establishes God as the creator. 
the creator of these heavenly lights pointing to the sun, the moon, the stars, the celestial order. But it's the inclusion of the word father that really strikes me. Unlike all the other creation stories throughout religious history where a deity creates out of chaos or out of violence, the Bible establishes God as a tender-hearted creator. God is the father of all he has made. And then verse 17 ends by highlighting God who does not change like shifting shadows. Or you might say that God is steadfast. In academic theological terms, um, you would say that God is immutable, that he's unchanging. Um, The same yesterday, today, and forever. Classic hymns, they loved to pick up on this characteristic of God. To endless years the same we sing in O God our help in ages past. Or maybe more familiar and uh, deeply meaningful for many of us. Thou changest not. You can sing if you want. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Steadfast. I really like the plain spoken way that Pastor John Corson talks about this steadfastness of God. He writes this, he is not moody. He doesn't have bad days. He's not generous with me one day, but then grouchy the next, as I can so often be. We are variable. We go up and down, but God doesn't. He can be nothing but good. He doesn't react to me according to how I'm doing with him. He is faithful when I am faithless. He is good when I am grumpy, he doesn't change. So James highlights these characteristics of God, the generous giver, the tender-hearted creator, and the steadfast one, all in a single verse. Just verse 17 of chapter 1. But then how does James answer the question, who are we? And for that, let's turn our attention to the next verse, verse 18. And he writes this, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. Now these verses here, they're bracketed by a shared phrase that James uses um, in verse 16 and then in verse 19, before and after. And we find this phrase, my dear brothers and sisters. And this phrase is really significant because James is first off reminding us that we are family. God is not the father just of the heavenly lights, but he's our father as well. And because of that, you and I are family. But there's an even better translation than family for this here. And that word is the word kinfolk. And I know that's a strange old word. It's antiquated, it's rural, it's country, it's backwoods. But this is a word that I'm really familiar with. It's a kind of hillbilly word. And I'm a Hatfield. I'm a descendant of true 
backwoods hills people. I've probably shown you this photo before. Here's a shot of my ancestors, the Hatfield kinfolk. Not a smile to be found. Even the youngest of the children in this picture are so intimidating. But here's the thing about this picture. Those people don't all share the last name Hatfield. And yet, they are the Hatfield kinfolk. When I was little, and we would go and visit my dad's family, the Hatfield side, down on the border of Kentucky and West Virginia, we would spend whole days just driving around seeing the kinfolk. And this was a crazy range of different people. Some of these people lived in very modern, very nice houses, the kinds of houses that made my brother and I really jealous. And then I also had an uncle who lived in a house that was one big room with dirt floors, no indoor plumbing, no electricity. He had a small little pot-bellied stove in the corner that kept the place warm. And this is the early 1980s. Some of these houses, they would have driveways with multiple brand new cars in them. And then some places just had rust buckets propped up on cinder blocks. And I remember asking my grandma, how could these all be our family? They don't have the same last name. They look and they live so differently. How could these all be our family? And without hesitation, she would say something like this. That stuff don't matter. Them's our kinfolk. I think kinfolk is a helpful way of understanding the community of people who all claim God as their father. It's even wider than those people that we would encounter when we were in Kentucky. James, when he was writing this, he wanted to remind both faithful Jews and newly converted Gentiles that they were kinfolk, that they were bound together by the Father of the heavenly lights. And so are we. Despite your political leanings and despite your opinions about COVID-19, despite your university affiliations and loyalties, despite your income level, and on and on and on and on, despite all of those things, through the saving life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we are kinfolk, my dear brothers and sisters. James continues in verse 18, and he highlights that we have been chosen by God. That we've been chosen to receive life through the word of truth. And this points both to God the creator who with one word spoke all things into being. But it also points to the word of the gospel birthed in the life of every believer. And then connected with that James says that we are a kind of first fruit. Now, I don't want to get too deeply into the theological weeds here about first fruits. If you want, uh, you can dive into Numbers uh, chapter 15, Deuteronomy 18. You can get a little bit more context about first fruits. But what I think is instructive for us here is that first fruits were voluntarily set apart for the Lord. The biblical word would be consecrated. That these first fruits were surrendered to God to be used however God 
would choose. And for our purposes, seeing and understanding ourselves as a kind of first fruits, it means that we voluntarily offer ourselves to God, that we're intended to have a kind of do-what-you-will-with-me posture before God. As it relates to our mission and vision, we say to God, for the sake of the world, use me as you please. Okay. But what difference does it make seeing who God is and who we are in the book of James as it relates to our mission and vision, particularly to the second half of our vision statement for the sake of the world? Well, I propose this. Understanding and continually rehearsing who God is and who we are in relationship to God, that is the foundation of all of our efforts for the sake of the world. Let me say it this way. We can't get out there right if we can't get in here right. Our efforts for the sake of the world are incomplete without living into these foundational realities without understanding that God is the creator, that he is the faithful and steadfast giver of every good and perfect gift, and without understanding that we have been chosen by God and that we are being used by God, that we don't operate on our own power and we don't operate on on our best intentions alone. And friends, if we don't fully embrace and celebrate the wild and diverse kinfolk reality of the family of God, the more we splinter and divide over non-essential, non-central issues, the less we live into our Jesus people unity, the more compromised our work is for the sake of the world. We must fight for unity And we must honor the diversity of Christ's body, the church. And we must continually place our confidence in our steadfast God. We can't get out there right if we can't get in here right. So let's pivot. And pivot from who to how. And I'm going to go ahead and give you my second point. The first point. We can't get out there right if we can't get in here right. And my second point is this. We can't get out there right if we can't get in here right. Look at verse 19. James begins to give some specific directives on how people should live. And he begins again with these wonderful kinfolk words, my dear brothers and sisters, Take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because our anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Okay, there's so much here. James, throughout the whole book, he has so many things to say about talking and listening and doing. I'm particularly struck here by this trio of behaviors and how countercultural they are. 
especially in our current moment. Quick to listen. Oh, if only that was a common posture. And not simply quick listening for a place to jump in to talk and to share one's own opinion. But a real eagerness to hear what the other is saying. I think being quick to listen is a mark of true humility in a person. And then slow to speak. Oh, if only that was a common posture. Maybe we could include slow to post and slow to tweet in that as well. Um, Isaiah 50, there's this wonderful phrase in Isaiah 50. Uh, It's the word, an instructed tongue which I think is a really great contrast to an unbridled, quick-to-speak impulse. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 2, it starts like this. Do not be quick with your mouth. And then the verse ends, so let your words be few. And then slow to anger. Oh, if only this was a common posture. Don't you sense a kind of low-grade anger bubbling under the surface of almost everything these days? So many conversations. Certainly every comment section. In Zoom meetings, in texted email threads. It's like all of these are these little powder kegs. And they're ready to blow as soon as someone brings up that one topic or uses that one phrase. I think that James here stresses that our anger doesn't produce what God desires because so often my own anger almost always defends or promotes only my own agenda. I really like this quote from an early church writing. It may be wrong to be slow in some things, in other things, but when it comes to anger, tardiness is the right policy. Because by the time we get round to it, the reasons for it may have dissipated. Now, Obviously, James isn't advocating for the removal of all speech and all anger. Because not all speaking and not all anger is wrong. Many things need to be said. And there are plenty of realities that we should be angry about. I think what's happening here, what we're, we're receiving is we're receiving this well-phrased caution from James. That we need to be measured in our speech. And measured in our anger. For our purposes, I think this trio of behaviors, it's a picture of a disciplined life. I think this is a picture of a person who has his or her impulses in check, who has developed a controlled temperament. And I know that involves so much more than just what James has addressed here. But I think this is a very strong starting point. And what this has to do with our mission and vision, again, we can't get out there right if we can't get in here right. Friends, part of putting the world back together must include your own individual transformation. Your own journey towards Christ-likeness is for the sake of the world. 
You're practicing a slow-to-anger lifestyle is good for the world. Don't neglect your own maturity in Christ and don't neglect your own spiritual growth in pursuit of equality and justice and the restoration of all things out there. You are included under the category of all things. You and I need to be restored and healed and put back together. Don't lose yourself in the pursuit of of doing good in the world, we can't get out there right if we can't get in here right. We're going to move toward a practice. We're doing this every week. A practice that we can do together in real time and then a practice that hopefully will extend throughout the rest of the week. And As we do that, let's look at A couple of final verses here from James chapter 1, starting at verse 23, um, at this really colorful spot. James says, those who listen to the word but do not do it, uh, do not do what it says. They're like people who look at their faces in a mirror. And after looking at themselves, go away and immediately forget what they look like. But those who look intently into the perfect law, the law that gives freedom, And they continue in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but do it. They will be blessed in what they do. So James here presumes that the point of looking into a mirror is to tell you something about yourself. Hair that needs combed, if you're lucky enough to have it. Lipstick that needs fixed or food that's on your face. Something that needs to be addressed. The mirror helps us become aware of that. And for me... A very helpful mirror is the practice of confession. It reflects back to me what I often don't want to admit is true. I remember one night um, walking through our house from our living room to the dining room and on my way into the kitchen. And I passed through the dining room where we have the sliding glass doors. And I caught a glimpse of my own reflection. And in the span of like milliseconds, multiple things came to mind. The first thing was, who is that that's inside my house? Um, And then once I realized that it was me, this phrase immediately popped into my mind. That's not what I look like. That's not what I'm like. My posture is much better than what I'm seeing in that reflection. And I know the clothes that I'm wearing are much more slimming than what I see in that reflection. My eyes are not so, so, uh, you know, close together and I don't have that many double chins. That's not what I'm like. But the mirror isn't interested in what I think I am like. It simply reflects back what is true. And that's what confession does for us. It reflects reality back to us. And it highlights what needs to be addressed. When it comes to confession, I often think about this one passage from C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. Um, The teacher demon is writing to the understudy demon. And he writes this one section. He says, you must bring him, you must bring the human to a condition in which he can practice self-examination for an hour without discovering any of those facts about himself which are perfectly clear 
to anyone who has ever lived in the same house with him or worked in the same office. It's an easy condition to be in, to not see clearly. Therefore, we need the power of the Holy Spirit to reveal truth to us. And so we bring ourselves to confession humbly, being quick to listen, listen to whatever the Spirit has to say to us, being slow to speak, slow to defend ourselves, and slow to anger, angry with God for pointing something out and angry with ourselves when we discover what is true. But we also bring ourselves to confession confidently, and we trust in our tender-hearted God whose love is steadfast throughout all generations. And so we're going to practice confession. Just two beats here. I'm going to take 60 seconds to ask for God's revelation. We're going to sit and pay attention. Allow the Spirit to help us see clearly, to be a mirror of truth for us. And then after that minute, I'm going to invite you to pray some simple phrases of confession. And so we're going to begin here. Just get comfortable. And begin by asking God to show, to show you any ways that you have been less than hospitable to your kinfolk, to fellow members of the body of Christ. Or ask God to show you ways that you have been slow to listen. Ways that you have been quick to speak in ways that you have been quick to become angry. So we say, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And then in response, I just want to invite you to pray a very simple phrase. Naming as specifically as you can whatever God has revealed to you. Just add this phrase. I am truly sorry and I humbly repent. So for example, be, oh God, for the way that I responded to my wife at dinner last night, I am truly sorry and I humbly repent. Or God, for my angry Facebook rant this past week. I am truly sorry and I humbly repent. So now take a few seconds here and to confess specifically, as specifically as you can, whatever the Spirit has revealed to you.
God, we confess that we are poor and needy. And we ask that you would have mercy on us. For you are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call to you. And amen. I want to encourage you to include some version of that confession every day for the next week. And let's join together as a church, humbly facing and naming whatever it is that the Spirit reveals to us. Confession is a regular part in many uh, liturgical traditions. And one way that many people are encouraged after a humbling moment of confession is by coming to the table where we are reminded of our communion with Jesus. And though we don't fully live as we should, Jesus did. And we are invited into continued relationship and into his faithful presence because of his life and death and resurrection, which we celebrate and remember each time we come to this table. And so even after facing some of the difficult aspects of who we are, we turn to the table to once again face the goodness and the mercy of God. And so let us join our voices as we do every week and rehearse this great story. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. And let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And we remember at this meal that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he took the cup of wine and he blessed them and he gave them to his disciples who were there. He invited them to eat and to drink. And he told them that every time they took these elements and they celebrated this meal, that they would proclaim Jesus' life and death and resurrection until he returns. And we pray again as we come to this table. We say, Holy Spirit, would you meet us in ways that we cannot anticipate or ask or imagine? Would you feed us with these elements? Would they be spiritual food for us? Would we be strengthened? And as we do our best to give ourselves for the sake of the world, will we also be drawn back to these fundamental realities through your word and be reminded of how dependent we are on you in this meal. Thank you, God, for hearing and answering our prayers. And we pray them in Jesus' name. And amen. And we inherit these simple phrases from other hungry and thirsty followers of God throughout history who have tried to summarize this great story in these simple words. So we say them together. Christ has died. Christ is risen. And Christ will come again. So friends, taste and see that the Lord is good.